We have listened to the story of the prodigal son so many times over the course of our lives that by now it's become kind of rote. It's like living next to a busy freeway. At a certain point, you just stop hearing it. We modern Christians can see the ending coming from a mile away. Of course, the prodigal son will be met on the road once more by his forgiving father. They'll have a big welcome home party, kill the fatted calf, and invite the whole village in to celebrate. Once again, the older, more responsible son will refuse to join in, preferring to remain outside, stewing with resentment. We understand the parallels. The father is God. The prodigal son represents the sinners and tax collectors who surround Jesus and sometimes represents us if we're really thinking about it. Seeking forgiveness. And the older son stands for the Pharisees and scribes who refuse to hear the message of Christ, indignant at having to associate with the unrighteous, which also can represent some of us if we think about it. We probably already know the message. It's never too late to repent. God's forgiveness is extravagant. God embraces us equally, prodigal and obedient. We might even play the game of which son am I to try to find a new path into this parable. But ultimately, though we may feel a twinge of sympathy for the older son, we are kind of set with what this story has to teach us. then why are we still so ashamed? If we know the lesson of absolute forgiveness, this parable imparts, why can't we always believe it? So many people I know carry a sense of guilt or sorrow with them year after year for an offense or a personality trait or a desire they have that they deem unforgivable. I still can get little jolts of shame for being gay, 30 years after coming out, despite a loving husband and a changed culture. We behave as if divine love were conditional, and that God prefers to opt out under certain circumstances. And so, like the prodigal son, we starve ourselves, standing mired in our own pigsty muck, thinking it's what we deserve. Or... If we're set with the message contained in this parable, why then do we still hold on to our resentments? Knowing God loves us equally, why can't we forgive and love each other? So many people I know, good and kind, refuse to forgive a wrong done to them, sometimes years ago. They can't let go of an injustice or a slight, but remain stuck in a place of righteous judgment. I still bear a grudge against someone I feel belittled me in my year as a priest in Boston, unable to let go of my own indignation and hurt. We behave as if divine love is selective, favoring only the upright, while merely tolerating our offenders. Like the older son, we starve ourselves, stubbornly refusing to join in the feast of forgiveness, thinking only we deserve the banquet being served, to our disrespectful brothers. And so this parable we have heard so many times before is not yet done with us. 
in the year and a half when I was unemployed as a priest and living in the Bay Area before I got my job in Long Beach. I would occasionally celebrate Eucharist on Sunday afternoons at a park up in Hayward with a group called Sacred Space East Bay. The congregation was made up of the homeless who gathered in that park. After the liturgy, we served a meal and would visit with people. One woman, Yolanda, never took communion. Instead, when I offered her the bread, she would look at me and say, Can I talk to you for a minute? Sure, I would reply, but I can't talk right now. How about after the service? Okay, she would say, but then disappear before I could find her. Finally, one Sunday after this had happened two or three times that she'd wanted to talk, I said, don't leave. I am coming to find you immediately after the service. And I did. Before she could even get her meal and go, I pulled her aside and we sat down on a park bench. After much prompting on my part and lots of stops and starts, she finally said, Father, it's just that I did something bad. But I had to do it. I had no choice when I was 17 years old. And she started crying. My mom, we were very Catholic. She told me I had to confess my sins to God and pray for forgiveness. That if I didn't, I could never go to church and take communion again. But I never went. I didn't go. And now I'm 49 years old and I've done even more bad things. Like, look at my arms. I've done drugs. I've lived on the street. And I, you know, I want to take communion, but I can't. And she began to cry again. Just then, a friend of hers showed up with a meal from the sacred space group. Here, Yolanda, I didn't want you to miss the food, he said. After he left, I turned to her and said, Listen, God loves you right now. Every last bit of you, the good and the bad, the wrong and the right, with all the mistakes you've made. God has been waiting for you like this, with open arms, ever since you were 17. It's only you that has held yourself back. I know, I know, she said. So, do you want communion today, I asked. I just happened to have a bit of consecrated bread and a thimble cup of holy grape juice with me. Not as dumb as I look. And I, I offered it to her. But she wouldn't take it. I have to confess first, she mumbled. Well, guess what, I cried. I can do that too. And so we did. I heard her confession. I really had to prod her along. But we got through it with only one interruption. Another friend bringing her a second meal, worried that she would miss out on the food. Afterwards, I gave her communion. The body of Christ, the bread of heaven. The blood of Christ, the cup of salvation. She cried again and thanked me. I told her, Yolanda, those two friends who brought you food, and now you have twice as much to eat? That was God taking care of you, giving you abundance, surrounding you with friends who love you. We said goodbye, and I left her on the park bench, opening up her containers of food and digging into the banquet. No sin is so great that we cannot be welcomed back with open arms. 
God parts the drapes and looks out the window down the road every day, hoping to spy us on that path coming home. But the first step towards that second chance is one that we have to make. My husband's friend, Nick, attends a Greek Orthodox church. In that tradition, the Sunday before Lent begins is called Forgiveness Sunday. The whole congregation gathers and does a big confession together. As a member, you're also supposed to approach other members and forgive them for anything they did to you in the past year. But this guy, Nick, cannot drop a grudge he has against a fellow parishioner. So every year on Forgiveness Sunday, he goes to a different Greek Orthodox church to avoid having to forgive this person. He jokes about it, but it strikes me as sad, if all too human. Nick, like the older son in the parable, lives in a state of disgrace because they dismiss the grace that is offered to them, choosing to remain stuck in their resentment. When we live with unforgiveness, it can settle like a stone in our stomach and affect our appetite for love. So God runs out the door and down the stairs, begging us to join the banquet. But again, that first step towards reconciliation is one we have to make. So this and every Lent, we rehearse that journey back home in our head, hoping one day we are met on the road by a God who will fall on our neck rejoicing and ask no questions, or praying for a God who will patiently wait inside until we are ready to forgive and join the feast. And maybe every Easter, we slaughter the fatted calf in our heart, practicing what celebration feels like until we can muster the courage to take that first step towards return. Trust that before you've even taken a second step, the door has already been flung open and God races towards you with open arms. Amen.